Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, and joined second time in a row by Adam LaPierre, our director of wine in Billy's absence. Adam, this is, it's getting to be kind of a comfy seat for you. Brady, I'm, I'm enjoying the quality time. I'm honored to be back. And I was sort of wishing you didn't say that it was because Billy was on vacation and just <laughs> my company. But, uh, you know, anyways, it's a pleasure to be back. <laughs> yeah, if, if Billy stays away for too much longer, I think you'll have enough cred around the building where you'll be able to stay on in perpetuity. I'm for the seat, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to announce to Billy that you have a new a new contract. We, we sign you to a, a podcast, a 30-episode podcast deal. <laughs> Yeah, we have we have a great interview today at the end of the podcast or at the end of this intro. Um, we have Yula Schmidt, who's the COO of Inventory, which is a Canadian-based seller tracker uh, product, something that I started using a couple months ago when our companies kind of got connected. We're in very similar stages of growth. She said they were founded in 2018. We kind of started up around 2019 conceptually. So kind of growing alongside each other and she was really able to share a lot of interesting insight about collectors and investors that they have on their seller management, seller tracking platform. So stay tuned for that. But Adam and I just want to take a few minutes to dive a little bit into an upcoming offering that we're really excited about. I think we've mentioned it previously on the podcast, but our Bordeaux Futures offering that will be launching towards the end of August that we've already announced by the recording of this po- or by the launch of this podcast. We have that Bordeaux Futures offering coming out. It's $230,000 total value, over 45 producers, over 1,100 bottles. This has been in the making for several months now, and it included Billy actually going to France and, and tasting wines in Bordeaux, and it's kind of culminated in the creation of this this offering, which we will try and do every year, a Bordeaux Futures offering. It will kind of be a staple on our platform and a, a typically a larger offering, but is certainly a flagship and a cornerstone of any wine investment portfolio. So Adam, do you want to dig in a little bit there and maybe we'll tease some of the content that we have upcoming? Yeah. Well, yeah, very excited about this collection in general, because I think giving, well, I think the collection encapsulates a few of the really unique uh, aspects of Vint and and working with Vint. And that is the you sort of touched on it, the incredible level of diversification and exposure an investor can get by participating in this collection as compared to trying to do it themselves and, and owning and holding these bottles. It, with the sheer number of producers and bottlings, if somebody wanted that similar level of exposure and diversification, they'd need to spend $9,000, right? And that's only owning one bottle of each. If you own a bottle of each, you're going to have less potential on the secondary market versus these wines, which are going to be in original wood case are going to be laying in Bordeaux. So it's, it's the, the, the level of diversification is, is I think really compelling here. Obviously Bordeaux futures is all, it's another, another interesting aspect is that it is the, it's the opportunity to acquire these wines at their lowest prices they'll ever be offered at from the Chateau one of the reasons for this is obviously it's two years before the wines are actually being bottled and released. So there's this trade-off here, providing cash flow to the market and getting access. What's interesting is the Chateau, especially the top Chateau, are releasing 
less wine every year through the futures campaign because they want to hold more back and ultimately release more as physical wine in the future. There, a lot of these top producers are pretty cash rich, so there's there's value in them still tapping into this market, but the volumes released are much less. So it's a it's a great opportunity, I think, to one be able to secure these wines at lowest possible price, get diverse exposure to 2021 Bordeaux. And there's some also other some really there are some other really compelling reasons I to look at 2021 vintage Bordeaux. Yeah, as a, a siren goes off in the background here. Is there what's the unique advantage that Vint has in terms of sourcing uh, futures offering? Well, we work directly with the negotiants. So that means we're getting the wines at the lowest possible price that a merchant could acquire these wines for, as opposed to buying them at retail. We work with a number of negotiants, and that gives us best opportunity to secure the largest allocations of the top wines. Typically, as an example, when one of the more desirable wines releases, the negotiants, the, the negotiants all get their own allocations, and they are then allocating those, breaking those volumes down to their customers. So by working with a lot of negotiants, we are able to aggregate supply and concentrate supply in particular of the most interesting wines. So um, those are a couple of key elements for us. Um, and you know that proves out because looking at the the basket, I think we've got a really compelling assortment of just the top wines. Twenty one is a vintage is you know it's sort of mixed in terms of consensus around quality and and ageability. So being selective and really getting the absolute best assets that are providing highest quality to price ratio is key in vintages like this. And I think we have every first growth Bordeaux. Um, who has a futures program? Is that right? Who participates in in, in the futures? All Correct. Is that true? Okay, that's right. Is so Latour, Latour does not okay. exactly. Latour does not participate in the um, on premier campaign. They release their wines um, when they deem them to be ready to consume. So that'll come many years later. But uh, we've got Lafitte, we've got Margot, we have Mouton, we have Aubryon. Um, we've got all the important crew class A Bordeaux on the left bank, and we've got some uh, top, obviously a number of top producers on the right bank as well. So we've got a, a really compelling portfolio here. Yeah, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times in the past with two investors that, you know, anecdotally, I've seen folks who, when they invest in wine, they only buy Bordeaux futures. Is it really that much of kind of a core asset or or a core piece of exposure to have in your wine investment portfolio that, you know, Bordeaux futures might be the only thing that someone could purchase and, you know, they would have a pretty well diversified, you know, portfolio. Yeah. I think if, if you're buying well, there is always opportunity regardless of the vintage and the release prices. In some instances, the campaign on the whole um, can be greeted with sort of a lukewarm response. And typically that happens when the quality price becomes somewhat out of balance because the chateau are always thinking about the physical vintages and wines that are on the market those prices they're thinking of preceding vintages the quality and the price of those and how well those campaigns have gone and so they're always making these calculations as to what is the correct release price for um, for their wines as the ca campaign goes on the campaign of these releases normally takes place over like four or six weeks. 
And so the market is getting feedback. The producers are getting feedback based on how well their predecessors' wines have been received by the market. So sometimes you'll see a, a campaign evolve from, from beginning to end. There have been other instances where the prices were simply too high and the, the response from the trade was lukewarm. And, and therefore, it took a longer period of time for the, the prices to ultimately appreciate. So I think it's you, know, you always need to be deliberate and judicious when you're thinking about what assets to buy. But in general, I think there's always value to be found if you are if you are you know using those types of analysis. And these are grapes that were harvested fall 2021, and so the selection process, the tasting, uh, deciding which wines to purchase, and this whole Unpremore campaign happened while the wines are still in barrel. Exactly. Right. So share for our investors. When does bottling typically happen across the region? When when can we expect to start to see like Vint actually taking custody of the bottles in the wooden wooden crates? And what's the expected hold period? Yeah. So typically the wines will start to be bottled around a year and a half after the harvest. And that bottling period could extend for up to two years. It really depends on the individual producers and when they are deeming these wines to be ready based on their maturation protocol. But typically we would start seeing these wines physically available on the market in 2024. The process of presenting the wines to the trade and to critics happens in the spring after the after the crush and after the harvest. So as you mentioned, when people are tasting these wines, they're still in barrel. And in most many cases, they're not the final blend. So the winemakers will put together sort of an indicative blend for these tasters that is representative of what the final wine is going to be. But those decisions could change a bit before the final bottling. So what happens is the critics and the trade will go and taste these wines that activity is concentrated within one or two weeks time in Bordeaux. So people fly from all over the world in, have appointments at the Chateau with the negociants, extensively taste and form opinions around general quality of the vintage and then also about specific producers. So then typically because these wines are representative blends, they are tasted again once they're physically bottled. So the critics will reduce release these in barrel scores. And once the wines are in bottle, they'll typically run through them all again and do updated scores. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the value proposition as an investment for futures is, you know, there's there's multiple factors there. There's the hopefully favorable acquisition pricing, which sounds like we were able to be really discerning and and uh really discerning there while also being able to acquire the top wines from the region, the top wines that were available and a really wide uh, swath of those wines. So uh, where there are, I mean, in any large batch like this, you'll have some hits and some misses and some underperformers and some outperformers. This feels like an offering that allows for a lot of different scenarios over the next three years for Vint to, you know, potentially provide, you know, a favorable proceed for investors over that period of time. So I'm excited for the offering. I think it's a great cornerstone for any collection. And yeah, I mean, we talked last time about Bordeaux taking up the amount of trade that Bordeaux takes up in the marketplace. And so any offering that gives you such broad exposure to that region, I think is is, is a good opportunity for yeah. investors. 
yeah, it's an important moment in the fine wine trade in general and, and, and a big event and a big opportunity. I was speaking with a negotiant supplier last week, and he was saying that at the time that the wines were being released, the temperature, or I would say the general feel of the trade was sort of lukewarm, but there was a lot of uncertainty happening at that time. In retrospect, they they feel like the campaign was was quite successful. About 80% of the wines sold out, which is, is very good. Obviously, all the top wines, which is where our focus is, sold out. So, you know, we're confident that we've got the best assets. When we look at the 2021 vintage com- compared to the 2017 vintage, which is somewhat comparable from a quality perspective, we find relative value in the 2021 vintage, in particular, the wines that we sourced. And then the other compelling piece about this offer is when we look at US market retail, the Vint collection, we are releasing this and, and the opportunity to invest in this collection at at below the lowest US retail prices. So it's kind of, I think, best of all scenarios here, best assets, great acquisition price, good quality to price ratio, and true diversity into the category, diversification into the category. Yeah. Yeah. And our listeners and investors should stay tuned for several pieces of content around this offering over the next couple of weeks, including a webinar discussion where we'll, where we'll dive a little bit deeper into the process and, and Billy will share about his experience actually going to Bordeaux and being able to taste some of these wines, as well as resharing some written content that we've drummed up over time. And yeah, look forward to informing our investors a little bit more about this offering, informing investors about Bordeaux more generally and the way that the wine trade works there because it is unique. There you know, isn't a process like this as robust as this anywhere else in the world. So yeah, it's great for us to be involved with Bordeaux Futures. And we we hope that we can provide a lot of really good value for our investors. Yeah. Now we'll leave you with our interview with Eula Schmidt, who is the Chief Operating Officer at Inventory, a Canadian-based wine management seller tracker for both collectors and investors. They're building a really great product. Like I said, in the beginning of the episode, our companies are fairly similar in age and we're kind of growing alongside each other. It's a product that I really enjoy and and Adam's got to dive a little bit more into. So yeah, enjoy the conversation and have a great rest rest of your week. Hi, Eula. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Brady. Great to be here. Yeah, it's awesome that we finally got to connect. We, I think, first made touch a few months ago and and, uh, I think both of our companies have been doing some fundraising and, and growing really rapidly. So I'm excited to have you on to talk about inventory and what you all are working on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a crazy summer, I think, across the board. I'm sure for you and Adam as well and the whole team. Yeah, no, it definitely has. We've um, had a lot of changes to our product and um, added a lot of new investors over the last couple of months, really scaled up our collection efforts now that we have Adam on the team, um, really heading up our wine side. Um, So yeah, it's been a great last three, four months. Great. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to hear about inventory. I mean, we've talked about it a little bit one-on-one, but to be able to share with our listeners on the podcast and our investors, um, there are a lot of seller management tools out there. Um, seller Tracker, among others, are maybe um, some of the most popular, well-known in the space, but inventory has um, kind of emerged as a player with a really cool interface. I- I've enjoyed kind of working with the product, and I think you guys have kind of elevated um, that product, which sometimes can just feel like spreadsheets and numbers. And um, I think you guys have taken it to a really cool place. So give us a little bit of the background. Talk to us about what sets inventory 
apart from other seller management platforms and products and maybe where you're going as you start to expand your product offering. Perfect. Well, thank you for the kind words. I'm happy that you're getting some some use out of inventory for uh, what I'm sure is a very large and very impressive collection that you have at home. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, it's, uh, it's um, probably a little too large and too impressive for my wife, but um, <laughs> other folks in my in my life like it. So. Uh, see, this is why at inventory, we have permission so you can control who sees your collection. Yeah, <laughs> I toggle <laughs> the uh, total collection value so it just has asterisks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good man. Well, so so inventory, as you mentioned, it's a seller management platform. And our commitment and our sort of vision is to take the work out of collection management, out of collecting, so that collectors can get back to what really matters, which is enjoying their wines. And the company really grew out of a real world problem, which is where you hope every company and every great idea comes from. And it was the founder, Jeff Dater, and his son, Josh Dater, who came up with this. So Jeff is by trade a physician. Uh, and he had planned to retire after building up a series of medical clinics, which he had sold. And he wanted to just write screenplays and drink his wines and relax uh, in the sunset. And unfortunately, he could never find his bottles nor keep track of his collection. So this is a common problem that everybody who has ever tried a collection management software will be aware of. But he just couldn't do it. And he tried all of the options that were on um, available in the market. And eventually he ended up, up back uh, with an Excel sheet which that is just a, a, a heavy lift to keep up to date. If you're three bottles deep in an evening and you go down and you grab the fourth bottle, the odds are very good. You're not going to go to your Excel sheet and <laughs> dock that from right. your, your roster. So he kept running into problems. And one night finally was trying to find a particular bottle in his wine fridge, which he'd put aside for the friend who was coming over. And Excel said it was in one spot. It wasn't in that spot. He was pulling out shelf after shelf, trying to find this bottle. And in his frenzy caught sight of a bottle rolling off the side of one shelf and bam smashed and shattered on the floor and spilled wine everywhere and of course it was the very bottle he was looking for so this frustration prompted him to then turn to his son josh who had just completed his master's in ai uh, and was a software developer and he said josh you got to build me something something easy and josh over the course of a weekend on a family vacation whipped up a quick little app and it was nothing fancy, but it got the job done and it worked for Jeff. And then Jeff's friends caught on and said, hey, I want, I want access to that. That looks pretty simple uh, and pretty nice to use. And so the two realized that they might have a business on their hands. And that's really where it began. Yeah. And this uh, the VIN locate feature, which I don't know when that uh, came into being, but this is basically a, a 3D visualization of your seller space, right, um, to help you to easily... Um, you know, not just uh, do like an alphanumeric uh, way to find your bottles, but really to actually see in your app or on the online interface uh, where the bottles are physically in the in the seller. Is did that uh, was that originally a part of this product, or did that come later? It was actually so in conjunction with that problem set that Jeff was trying to solve, right, of tracking his bottles. One of the big problems was obviously finding his bottles. So the two right away set to work trying to come up with a way in which to easily find bottles in a cellar visually, as opposed to alphanumerically, as you said, like you don't wanna look down and see column C row 12 and then have to go dig for that. So right. that was one of the initial problems they started to look at a solution for and came up with, as you mentioned, then locate, which is what we currently have in our platform today. So uh, we have two products in inventory, well, two, two tiers, I should say. So when you download the app, the free app, 
uh, we call that Aspire, that tier. That's free for everyone to use. It has all the main functionalities that you'd ever want. You can have unlimited bottles. You can have 10 cellars or fridges if you have your wines in multiple locations, track a wish list, all sorts of things. Um, but if you want to unlock our uh, advanced features, you have to subscribe to our subscription, which is called Prestige, which is $10 a month or $100 a year. And that unlocks things like market values, which will, of course, to your audience be quite important, seller analytics, which are also important, um, and then also VinLocate, uh, among other features. But VinLocate is sort of the flagship because this allows you to create a 3D reconstruction of your fridge, if you have a fridge, or your seller section by section. And then you assign bottles to particular locations, and then you can find them at a tap of a button. So this is one of our big differentiators. Like if I were to go through the roster of what differentiates inventory, I would say technology is one of the key ones because this is patent pending technology, this 3D functionality then locate. Uh, and it really does make life a lot easier because the wonderful thing as well is that once you can visually find your bottles, you don't have to rearrange your bottles if you happen to get too many burgundies and your burgundy section has overflowed, right? You don't have to move the Bordeaux over in order to make more room. You can really just put your bottles wherever you want, which is very handy. So once you get it onboarded, it, it does make life quite a bit easier. So I would say the technology that we have is a big differentiator. Aside from that, you mentioned this at the beginning, our simple UI, our user interface and the design, that's in the spirit of taking the work out of collecting, making it really easy to use was a big priority. So that's, I say, another differentiator because some of the other apps out there, as Jeff found, as I found, I was managing sellers before I found inventory and I used to run into this. They're not as easy to use. So that was a big priority. The third big differentiator for us is that our database is not crowdsourced. So a lot of other databases have users submit lines, right, with whatever regional information and everything they attach to it. We have a database that is overseen by sommeliers just to ensure its accuracy because we want to have very clean data. Uh, and then the fourth is just the breadth of features that we have. Like it really is a place where you can do everything that you'll want to do with your wine collection, uh, whether that's, like I said, unlimited bottles, finding them, market values, analytics, keeping track of incoming shipments, sharing your collection with someone. There's just so many things you can do. But yeah, VinLocate is a pretty special feature. And actually, I'll just uh, drop a little, little tidbit about where we're heading in the future. We have a pretty exciting feature coming out. It's actually an entirely new product, I should say, later this year. So I can't give too many details, but it will be even a step above VinLocate, whereby we'll be able to create entire 3D reconstructions of sellers to spec based on CAD drawings or design drawings. So if you have an island in the middle of your cellar, we'll be able to create that for you. So it's quite a bespoke and uh, quite a special product that we're coming up with here. And stay tuned for more on that later this year. Really interesting. Um, the, the data piece was something that I was going to ask you about because obviously starting from scratch and building a significant database of wines and vintages must have been a project in and of itself. So how, how did you go about sort of building the underlying database? And, and really interested to hear about the, the sommeliers working to maintain that data. I'd love to hear a little more about that. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, and, and you will know that uh, you, you'll, you'll both know that the data on wine is it's tough to build a database and it is so important because if you get things wrong, then um, that's not very helpful. So 
it took a long time to build the database. Like the company, Jeff and Josh first came up with the idea and created the company in 2018. The first product launched in 2020, like the free app. And then the subscription just launched last year. So it's a pretty young company, but it was pretty much just very slow integration of any public databases, whether from, you know, like the uh, um, uh, retailers in Canada or the U.S. that happen to have those things available, uh, we were able to kind of build up a little bit there, but then we really had to have our sommeliers go in and amend all of the data to ensure its accuracy. And we also add label images to every wine, um, which we kind of do ourselves to make sure that they look right. So it is a pretty heavy labor intensive project. We're always working on it and we do always get new wines submitted from users, but they don't go right into the database. They come to us we fix all the data, fix the label image, and then it goes into the database. So it's an ongoing project. Um, but the wonderful thing about it was that throughout COVID, as you know, many sommeliers lost their jobs, right? It, it was a tough time in the industry. And so we were actually able to find work for a lot of psalms during that period and have them work on our database um, uh, and use their knowledge and put their, their skills to work. So that was kind of a nice a symbiosis that we were able to have ongoing there. And we still do have Psalms who oversee it just because we don't want wines to get out there that haven't been vetted. Right. Makes a lot of sense. And then on the, the market value side, can you talk a little bit about the data inputs that you um, draw from to create that market value um, calculation? Yeah. Another great question. So we decided not to try to come up with our own market value uh, but to pull it from reputable sources and to pull from more than one to allow users to compare which one they think is most relevant. So right now we pull our market value data from Wine Searcher and LiveX. So with Wine Searcher, we do have historical data. So you can kind of see how prices trend over time. LiveX, we just have the one price, the current price, the current market value. But that allows us to just provide two pieces of data on the wines that have it, right? As you know, not every wine it has a secondary market value attached to it. It has to be traded in order to have that. Um, but if the wine has a price in either of those databases, we pull that in and it's available to the user. And whenever you do enter a wine, you can put in your own purchase price. So that's also a nice way for users to compare what they paid versus what the market value is so they can see that delta. And that maybe informs whether they want to hold that wine, drink that wine, sell that wine, whatever they want to do with it. Seems like a good approach in particular if. If, if the idea is not to create your own um, proprietary calculation to draw in those two sources, because you're bringing in the wine searcher average price, and that's typically not, it's representative of, um, you know, of a value, but it doesn't necessarily represent what you can sell that wine for if you wanted to go out and sell it tomorrow. Whereas LiveX is trading, but, but more trade oriented. So giving the user sort of the, the low and, and the high range allows them, I think, to approximate a, a, a true market value uh, in a way that that is realistic versus just taking wine searcher data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the other difficulties, of course, geography really matters in terms of what the market value of a given wine is, right? Where you are in the world. So by the more data points we can have, and we do, like the wine searcher prices are geolocated to some extent. So you will see things that are relevant to where you are, <clears throat> because obviously up here in Canada, I'm sure you're aware we pay a little more for wine than you do in the States, uh, unfortunately. Um, but it is important that we capture that distinction between where you are and what 
your wine might be worth what you can potentially realize uh, since it's not the same across the world. And so, uh, you know, we've talked about a, a cellar that has an island in the middle of it and is, I'm sure, extensive. Um, you know, mine is much smaller than that. Who is this product for? Who's using inventory? And, you know, well, what's kind of the target use case or the target um, either investor, collector or drinker? Yeah, so uh, we it's, it's kind of a funny thing because I think the user demographic base turned out to be a bit different than what we were expecting. Like if I asked you right now, who do you think wine collectors are? What would you say? Um, higher net worth folks probably making above 200,000 a year and uh, sellers probably more than 300 bottles. Oh, pretty fair. But most people, when I ask that question, you're, you're actually, you're not wrong at all. But <laughs> the high net worth part is always important because you need to have a little cash to buy wine, as we know. But uh, most people assume that it's quite an old, uh, like a bit of an older demographic, right? It's probably mm. people who are over 45, maybe at that stage where they have that disposable income to invest in wines and especially to invest in nicer wines. And there's two attributes that are kind of interesting about our user base. The first is exactly as you said, it is a pretty affluent user base. Like if you think about the average price of a bottle of wine in the US today, I think the latest data is that it's like $9 or $10 per bottle. Right? And most wines, of course, aren't collected. They're not held. They're consumed. 98% of bottles are consumed that night. So that's fair. The, the average price of wines is lower. The average price of a bottle in an inventory collection, however, is upwards of 65 USD. So it's quite a bit higher. So it is a demographic that is interested in wine as more than a drink. Once you see wine as more than a drink, you value it more. When you value something more, you're willing to pay more for it because you see not just the liquid in the bottle, you see the culture, the history, the producer, the you know reputation, all of that, and the potential for resale, potentially. You see all of those things in that bottle, and that's what you're willing to pay for. So it is an affluent group that's willing to invest in wine, for sure. The other attribute that's kind of interesting is it's a young group. So the average um, age, I forget what the average age, but over 30% of our users are under the age of 35. So we have people who are a lot younger who are discovering this. And I think what's interesting is there's been some, some I think, papers in Harvard Business Review about how Gen Y and, and Gen Z, they're much more attracted to experience. And wine is an experience in a sense. It is an experience with the people that you share it with around you. It's an experience connecting you to all of the history and culture and people, like I said, behind the bottle. Uh, and that seems to really speak to the younger demographics. So they're starting to get more into collecting into nicer wines because they're willing to spend on those sorts of things more so than on just pure sort of material goods, so to speak. And I, I'd imagine that there is, um, I guess, a generational difference in terms of uh, maybe older collectors are still using, you know, an Excel sheet or patent paper even versus younger folks are looking for maybe a more digital way to manage their seller um that yeah that would, that would make sense to me as well um yeah you know, i mean my I will say just on that point though what's interesting is that one of the um we do have a lot of people who i would say are you know upwards of 50 upwards of 60 on the platform and they actually love the platform because it is quite easy so even having an Excel sheet or writing tags on bottles, you know, the things that you might expect somebody who's not as tech savvy to do, that's a lot of work and it's not that easy. And so by finding a technical solution that's simple enough for, for that, let's call them technical peasants demographic to use, that's uh, that it actually has gotten a bit more traction in, in that cohort, I'd say, than maybe we were anticipating. 
One thing that I noticed about the application that I liked as well is you provide an easy way for users to migrate into the application from other uh, platforms. So that's probably pretty handy. Yeah, that one I think is huge because one of the biggest, one of the hard, the hardest barriers to entry, I'd say, for any of our customers is onboarding, right? It's not just getting your whole collection in there, but it's also getting it into then locate as a second step if you're going to locate it into, into that, um, that feature. So we've tried to make this as simple as possible. If you have your collection in a different platform, whether Vivino or Seller Tracker, or in any spreadsheet, which many of the other smaller platforms, they'll allow you to download a spreadsheet of your collection. As long as you have a spreadsheet of your collection, you can send that to us. And our team, again, overseen by sommeliers, our team will, will import that. And we usually turn them around in about 48 hours. And so your whole collection will then be in inventory and you won't have had to do any work just because it is, it can be such a, a challenge for people. And, and I, I, um, I do think it's important that we minimize that barrier as much as possible. So between investors or maybe just pure investors and wine enthusiasts, do you know the breakdown of who's, who is using the feature? Um, I'd imagine the bend would be more towards enthusiasts because maybe um, investors aren't keeping their own seller at their home. But is, this, is the product also used for a seller that's stored maybe offsite at a third party? Yeah, absolutely. So we, like I said, you can create up to 10. If you're Aspire, you can create up to 10 sellers or, for, or sellers. Or, or locations. And if you're a prestige, you can have up to 20. And people definitely use this to track what they've got in London City Bond or at, you know, Octavia mm-hmm. or wherever it is, uh, just wines that they're sitting on. And I would say, if we don't ask specifically, are you an investor or a collector? But I do think that there is quite a bit of overlap in part because of the high value of the bottles and the collections that we have, right? The average of collections over 250 bottles, those are the average value of those collections is like $60,000, which that's, I mean, there's some collections that are going to be far more bottles, but they're sizable collections. And I, I do find, I don't know if you guys find this on your side, I'd be curious on your thoughts on this, but I do find that there is a bit of an overlap in that people who invest in wine, often they are, sometimes they are just, you know, pure financial investors, right? They just see this as a financialized asset. They just want to hedge <laughs> whatever else is happening in the market. So they, they treat it in that way. But often there are collectors who treat this as a passion asset. And they think, you know, it's great if I can make some money, I'll sell half my case of Latash, I'll drink the other half and the half I sell will fund this, this the six bottles that I kept. Uh, and so there is a bit of an overlap there in people who buy fine wine, often are interested in selling some of it, at least, whether that's just to fund the remainder that they keep or to participate in the uh, potential returns on the, on the flip side. Do you find that you have a lot of collectors in your user base? We have a few serious collectors. Um, I think something that I've heard often is that folks are looking to take potential distributions that they might have from our site to obviously put back into Vint as well, but to recycle some of that money into purchasing bottles one day, maybe that they've seen on the platform. Like, oh man, I you know I'd love to be able to drink this Petrus or this DRC sometime. Um, and yeah, and so I think partially that. Uh, the educational component that we do around the wines that we bring to our platform uh, give people something aspirational in terms of their drinking habits um, to think towards and work towards uh, with their investment. So yeah, we definitely see some overlap there. I think the and one of the things that I've seen is that that second type of profile that you've outlined is um, can be very specific to certain markets. I think in the UK that is 
very much the profile of a wine collector who are leveraging their purchases to finance their consumption. In the U.S., I think it's a bit generational. Maybe the the more established collectors tend to have this emotional attachment um, around the wines that they've built uh, or the collection that they've built. And so there can often be a hesitancy to part with any of it. Um, but I think that is something that is evolving as uh, as younger consumers continue to become more engaged in the category. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great comment. And, and one thing I'll add is one thing I find very interesting. I actually did a, a paper on this last year as part of my MBA, just about the path towards fin- financialization of wines. And I, I'd be curious if you've seen this as well. But what I found is that it's very useful for investors to know what's going on with consumers and in the collector market, because there seems to be a temporal process whereby first, what happens when there's, let's let's say, let's take Barolo 10 years ago, Barolo 10 years ago, 15 years ago, hadn't really financialized, so to speak, right? It was maybe Conterno and Jacosa were kind of picking up a little, but it hadn't really financialized as a category in the same way that Bordeaux had, or even Burgundy 10 years ago. But what tends to happen, and, and this applies across the Bordeaux story from like 2007 onwards, the Burgundy story from 2010 onwards, and, and now Piedmont from like 2017 onwards, first collectors get attracted to a market. So they, whether for, you know, the reputation, the scarcity, the trendiness, whether, you know, they're seeing a lot of grid ratings about it, whatever it is, they get attracted to a given market, whether it's Barolo or whether it's Bulgari, and they start to buy more. And that increases demand right? And that increases price. And as prices start to tick up, so you see prices first go up, then investors start to see, huh, there's something happening here. Prices are going up. They come into the market. Prices go up even further because that's more demand. But then what's interesting is then volume, trading volume goes up after because it's the investors who are reselling. If you think in terms of collectors as the people who hold and investors who, as the people who sell, whether they're investors or not, they're just people who sell wine. So there seems to be a step whereby first, Wines tick up in price because collectors develop an interest. They buy and they hold. Then as prices go up, investors come in. They also increase price, but then they increase trading volume. And that kind of is the mark of financialization. That has applied across all of those regions. So I think it's very useful for investors to pay attention to what's happening in the consumer market with collectors to see what might be a harbinger of future financialization. Because, uh, you know, my instinct is this is happening right now with Barolo. I think it's going to spill over into Barbaresco and it kind of is already a little bit. And there's a bunch of other wines that I think are going in this direction as well. So to know that, I think, can be very valuable. Well, I mean, you guys obviously have built the platform for both collectors and investors. What advice would you give to, um, let's just say collectors to start? What advice would you give to collectors on starting up their collection? You know. Do they, um, can a platform um, like inventory help to guide purchasing um, and other things like that? Or how how do you think about um, helping folks get started collecting? Oh, that's a great question. I always say as a rule to get started collecting wine, just buy what you like. So step one is drink a lot of wine and figure out what you like. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's a good rule to live by in any case. Um, uh, I would say, especially if your goal is to collect in order to consume later on, if your goal is to collect in order to buy, then I would just send them to Vint, uh, in order to invest, then I would send them to Vint. But if you want to collect in order to drink, then, then first learn what you enjoy and, you know, don't 
narrow yourself too much into any particular category because your palate will probably change over time. I mean, we have a saying in wine that all roads lead to Burgundy. And I think that is largely true where a lot of people start with, you know, big Californian wines and eventually migrate towards more elegant things like Barolo and Burgundy. So I do think it's good to try to get a few different things or, or try, taste many things and, and potentially have a few of those different things in your cellar. Um, but another good thing to do is just try to find other people with whom to drink. Like at the end of the day, wine is meant to be shared. It's a social thing. It brings people together. And that's half of the experience of, of wine that's so enjoyable, right? So if you can find a wine club or a couple buddies with whom you can get together for Wine Wednesdays, I think that's a great way to just develop your palate, develop your tastes, have other people buy wines that you can then drink. Uh, and that's a that's a good way to, to get integrated into the world. And once you get in, it's a rabbit hole. And I mean, I find that anybody who starts down this path, once they start to see wine as more than a drink, they're off to the races. And next thing you know, they're going to have a wine wall, which will quickly turn into a wine fridge. And then like you start to cause marital troubles as their spouses <laughs> realize they've spent all of the money on fancy bottles. Yeah. The reason I needed inventory was because um, I'm five, eight and my cellar is six foot and I can't see the top, the back of the top shelf. So inventory <laughs> was helpful for that um, in my Eurocom. Um, marketing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that's awesome. I, I think that focusing for us, building relationships with collectors is important. Building relationships with producers is important. Um, I think both of both producers and collectors are, um, there are a lot of consumers who don't think about those two different parts of the market. They mm -hmm. see the wine on the shelf and maybe they think about a place like, oh, wine comes from France. Good wine comes from France. Um, but bringing in stories of collectors, bringing in stories of producers, that's important for us in terms of our education as well. I was, I've, I'm also curious, um, Adam and I talked last week about the makeup of the fine wine market and kind of trading volume on LiveX and such. Um, I think it's Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne make up more than 75% of fine wine traded. Do you see that same trend on your platform in terms of what you know, uh, is, is it, is it Burgundy? That's the most stored. Um, do you have a label? Is it DRC? That's the, takes up the most amount of value. What, do, what can you share in terms of what people are actually storing, um, in inventory? Uh, it's a, uh, I, I hate to break to you. It's not DRC because <laughs> there's only, what is there like 6,000 sure. every year. So we've got a portion of them, but we don't have them all. Now the most, <laughs> the most uh, popular wine, believe it or not for American collectors is Napa cab. Uh, it's mm -hmm. Napa wines. That is the most popular thing that they have because a lot of people, even if they have, um, a, a larger collection, often they will have some things, especially if they're spending time touring California because it's closer to home. They'll usually take a few things home with them. So that, that's not that surprising, but we do have a, a pretty big breadth of things. I would be curious to look into that. It's a great question. Um, what wines, if we could, I don't know if we have the ability to do this, but I should, I should ask our dev team if we could figure out just knowing sort of what the main investment grade or investable wines are, what proportion of those are in inventory sellers. Um, I did look before and you do know that there's quite a bit of DRC in there. So someday we'll have an inventory big party and we'll ask them all to bring their balls <laughs> and come with us. I'll invite you guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I catch a lot of flack here internally for being a, a Napa advocate. Um, I think it's cool that we have a region like Napa in our backyard and I think people should appreciate it more and, and stop drinking bad Napa and drink good Napa. Um, and drink <laughs> old Napa. So. 
Yeah, that's fair for sure. I mean, in, in Canada, the most popular wine is Okanagan wine, right? So I do think that there is, and I actually think this is one of the trends going on in wine right now. Like if you think about the t- trends that are happening in the wine market, I think there is for sure a trend towards localization. Like mm-hmm. I think more people are are interested in going to the wineries in their own backyard, buying local. I, I think that that is definitely happening. Um, so, so I think that speaks to the fact that people do have a lot of those wines in their collections. Yeah. Yeah. Our company was founded out of Richmond, Virginia, um, and, uh, kind of the Charlottesville and that, that kind of that Valley mountainous area. Um, so I'd be curious to see too, how many Virginia wines you have, um, in, in inventory. My collection probably makes up the bulk of them. No. <laughs> I will have a look. I will have a look. If you are our star Virginia collector, we should have a little kind of collector of a month on our homepage. We'll feature you. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing a little bit about inventory. I hope we can continue to kind of build a relationship and maybe do some cross-platform education and things like that. Um, I think it's really helpful for our users, our investors to understand that side of the market. Um, what's the best way for people to get involved in inventory, whether it's to sign up or to, to find you guys or find more information. Can they talk to someone at inventory and maybe just share a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're always happy to talk to anybody. I mean, everyone is welcome to reach out to any of us on the team. I mean, my email is youledinventory.com. Not very <laughs> difficult to remember. And I'd be happy to chat with any potential collector looking to come on or an investor or whoever in, in your community would like to connect we always invite people to sign up as well at inventory.com. You can create your account there uh, and um, explore what uh, Prestige has and also Aspire and, and see which of those would make sense for you. Uh, and then, of course, just support is always available as well. Support at inventory.com. If you get into it and you need any help with anything, we're always standing by. So we spend a lot of time talking to our collectors. We love talking to our collectors. They're always teaching us new things and giving us new ideas. And so uh, we'd be happy to talk to anybody and happy to continue the conversation with you. It's it's very impressive what you've done at Vint. And, and I know there are a lot of investors in our community who are also intrigued by it. So hopefully we can do a podcast and have you on our side one of these days. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, we'll, I'll let you know um, about how, how we're starting to build the Virginia wine collector base here on our side. We'll follow up on that later. Um, I've been trying to convert folks and and we'll help to tick up that percentage ownership. Um, thanks so much, Yola. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Brady. And thanks, Adam. Have a great day, you guys. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering. 